Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 21. And we're, we're picking up in the middle of a discussion. You'll notice where Evan just read for us uh, in, in verse 28 that, that verse 28 does not begin with like a new paragraph and Jesus went away and he was over here. I mean, the very next line is, and what do you think? And he's in the middle of a discussion uh, with these religious leaders, the chief priests of Jerusalem and the scribes. So he's in this interaction with them. And remember, they have been very hypocritical and deceptive. They uh, have a question that Jesus has asked of them, you know, where did John's ministry ultimately come from? Was it uh, from heaven or was it human? And they refuse to answer because either way they're doomed with, with their answer. And so Jesus is trying to get them to see where their failure is and where their hypocrisy is. And we're in the middle of that at this moment in Matthew. In fact, Jesus is going to tell three more parables before the scene shifts. Now, I can't do three parables in 35 minutes. That's not going to happen. We're going to look at two of them uh, this morning. And then, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll come back here and we'll be in Matthew 22. And we'll look at the third parable uh, that he tells. But uh, these parables are important because they are revealing the heart that God is looking for in his people. In telling these parables, he's going to show them the heart that they have and how that's not an acceptable heart before God. And then the two kinds of things, two kinds of attributes in regards to the heart that God is ultimately looking for. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And then we'll tie that all together with why that matters to us. As was just read for us in that first parable, uh, though I have the header, the parable of two sons. I'm going to call this the parable of hypocrisy, because what you have is a story about a father who says to his two sons, I want you to go into the vineyard and do a work for me. And one of them says, no chance. (laughs) I am not going to do what you said. But then you'll notice that Jesus says in verse 29, that son changes his mind later. And goes ahead and goes. The second son says, oh, sure, I will. But then never goes and and does it. And so then Jesus just asked a very straightforward, no-brainer, self-evident question. Which one did the will of the father? And he's pointing out in this parable, the one who does the will of the father is not the person who said they would. You can kind of feel how Jesus is, is getting on them right here. Here's these religious leaders and religious teachers, scribes and chief priests. And they're the ones who act like and talk like they're religious and righteous and faithful followers of God. And Jesus says, you know, the people who are saying that they're followers and saying that they do the will of God, that's not it. In fact, it's the one who said they wouldn't, but then ended up doing the will of the father. And so in an implicit way, Jesus is just calling these group, this group hypocrites, because you said you would do the will of the father, but you aren't doing the will of the father. And I think it is useful to observe that these, what I put in quotes, despise sinners, that these tax collectors and prostitutes is what he describes 
in verse 31 of his parable would have been considered by those religious leaders at that time as the most awful, the, the furthest from God. They're the despised. They're the terrible. They're the filthy. They're the awful. And he says, you understand that they're actually going into the kingdom and you're not. Because they changed their mind and have done the will of the Father. And you keep saying you're going to do the will of the Father, but you're not actually doing it. And so the simple message of this first parable is God wants repenters and not pretenders. God wants a people who change and do what God says. And not just simply people who say they're going to do it one day. Now, I want you to hold that message in your mind because the second parable expands upon it. And then the way Jesus pulls the second parable together reaches back to what he said in this first one and funnels into this big moment as he tries to get at the heart of what is wrong with these religious leaders and teach the kind of heart that he's looking for. And, and obviously what you're seeing for this first heart is a heart that's not hypocritical but simply wants to do the will of the Father. Now notice how the story continues in verse 33 when Jesus says, now I want you to hear another parable. Now my header here is the parable of the tenants. I'm going to call it the parable of rebellion because I want you to notice what happens in this really interesting parable. He says in verse 33, there's this master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. All right. What he tells right here was very normal at that time. Here's this landowner. He has this large property. It's a big vineyard. He needs to hire it out for people to work on the land is essentially the idea that's given. But when you hear the word vineyard, you would have had a, a clue jumping into the ears of this original audience. We mentioned last week that when you talked about fig trees, that frequently represented Israel in the Old Testament prophets. Vineyard is the same thing. Vines, vineyards, and fig trees are all repeatedly used by the prophets to use as a symbol to describe Israel and describe the nation. In fact, don't have time, but go read Isaiah 5 where God uses that image and talks about Israel, how he planted this choice vineyard and built up the watchtowers and he was expecting all of this fruit to come out of it and fruit didn't come out of it at all. In fact, it was wild, awful, terrible fruit and it was a whole parable of judgment and the vineyard represents that. In fact, you can jump to the very end of this parable and notice in verse 45 that it says that the chief priests and the scribes all understood that Jesus was talking about them. So they're not listening to this going, oh, vineyard, what a cute story about vineyards and tenants and all of that. They, they are already cluing in that this is a story about Israel and about their leadership in the nation. And once you notice how the story goes, verse 34, Jesus continues and says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Again, very normal in that day and time. You own the land. It's harvest time. I'm going to go send my servants in to go get the fruit that should have come from the harvest. I mean, there's nothing unusual 
about any part of this telling of the story so far. What's unusual about the story is what happens next. Verse 35. Then the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. That's not how that's supposed to go. (laughs) The owner of the land sends in the servants. I'm going to get my fruit from the harvest. Sends all the servants in. And the people who are running the land beat them, stone them, and kill them. I want you to be a little bit stunned about what happens next. Because I want you to just think about what would be your reaction if this is your property and this is what's going on on the property. Notice the next scene, verse 36. So again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. So the owner goes, well, maybe we need to try that again. So he sends even more servants in and gets the exact same response from these tenants. They stone them and beat them and mistreat them and kill them. And I want you to notice that there is a motivation that is going on with the father, the owner of this and the, and the tenants. Look at verse 37. So finally, he sent his son to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But listen to the thinking of the tenants in verse 38. In verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. (laughs) So it's unbelievable. They think now we can own this property for ourselves. We are killing the servants that are all coming in. And now the master is sending in the son. We'll kill him too. And we'll just take over this place. And that will be ours. Now, obviously, I would hope in your mind you're thinking that is very flawed thinking. <laughs> the owner's not going to go, oh, because you killed all of my servants and my son, I guess you can have the land. Uh, that's not how this is going to go. But this is the thinking that is going on here. That we will seize the son, throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. By the way, did you catch how Jesus worded that? Jesus is just a couple of days from his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. And he just described it right here in detail. He just said, you're going to seize me and throw me out of the vineyard and kill me. The crucifixion was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So he's already telling them, I know what you're about to do. (laughs) I already know what's going to happen. The son has come to look for fruit. And rather than receiving fruit, you're trying to take the inheritance yourself. And you're going to kill the son. And now he asks the question in verse 40. When the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? (laughs) I think all of us can immediately go, it's not going to go well for the tenants. And that's what they answer in verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. There should be justice for what they've done. They are killing and mistreating and beating his servants. 
And then they want to kill the son. And they think that this is their land, their property, their inheritance. And they're going to take it for themselves. There needs to be justice. And they will certainly be dealt with. And the owner will give the land to tenants who will certainly produce fruit. (laughs) I always try to visualize these things. I have to think Jesus just smiled as soon as they said that. He goes, yes. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. Exactly right. Verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. What Jesus does is says, you understand that the answer you just gave is exactly what Psalm 18 said was going to happen. Exactly what was going to happen. In your way of thinking, in your plan, you think that you're going to reject the son and that's going to be what you are looking for and that's going to give you victory and that's going to give you the land and you're going to be owners of all of this. And what Jesus turns around and says, actually, what you're about to do was what God said was going to happen and is going to be the means by which he's going to save the world. The stone that you all are rejecting is becoming the cornerstone And it's going to be marvelous in the eyes of everyone. And that's why you have to love in verse 45 when it says, and then the chief priests and the scribes realized that they were talking about him. (laughs) We're not happy that you're telling us something about ourselves. Now, I want you to notice two real big ideas from what these two parables are, are driving at for our lesson this morning. First of all, I want you to see what Jesus clearly describes here in verse 43. He says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits. I want us to see something very important as Jesus describes who belongs to the kingdom of God in these two parables. And the first picture that Jesus is giving is that he wants people who bear fruit. To put this another way, Jesus is not looking for people who just say the right things, but are actually bearing fruit by doing his will. Now, I want you to be impressed by Jesus here for a minute and be impressed by the the character of God as we think about how this is unfolding. Because what Jesus is saying is he knows who's real and who's fake. And we have this interesting game that we sometimes like to play with God. That we will be like the second son and say, I do the will of God, but there's no fruit. We like to be pretenders. 
We will say all the right things. We'll put up the Christianity facade when we're around certain people that we think needs to see it. But we're really not doing the will of God. And I want you to be impressed that Jesus is making a very strong observation here. There is no value in being fake. You are wasting your time trying to fake out God by saying, I will go and not go. And we can sometimes alleviate our conscience by thinking, well, you know, I go to church and I'm not that bad, right? You know, I'm. There's all those terrible people out there and I'm just not that bad. And so therefore I'm okay, right? You understand that's the whole essence of the parable. He's describing these despised sinners who are all going into the kingdom while the people who think they're a whole lot better than them because they say all the right stuff are not. Because Jesus knows who's real and who's fake. And friends, the person that God receives is not the individual who says the right things, but God is receiving the people who change their mind and choose to do the will of the Father. And I love the picture. Anyone can enter the kingdom of God. It will be given to a people, any people, who will produce fruit, who will do the will of the Father and not just say it. So let me drive at this one a little bit tighter then. Words are not enough. We live in a religious culture right now that thinks words are good enough. That if we just simply utter some words of repentance, that's enough. You know, I said, I'm sorry. What else does God want? Or that we could just pray a prayer and that's enough. Well, I prayed to God. So I'm good, right? Or we make some promise to God. Okay, God, this time I'm going to really do different. And never do anything different. What Jesus is driving at is words are not enough. It's not enough to say I repent. It's not enough just to pray. It's not enough to confess a sin. Will you change your mind and do the will of the Father? These people said all the right things. I mean, friends, the people in that day and time looked up to these religious leaders. You might remember that when Jesus is condemning them and they will say, well, if they're not in, then nobody's in. If they can't be in, what are we talking about? They look like they're the righteous. They look like the pious. They look like the ones who have to be in. If they're not in, who can be saved? And yet the answer is clear. I'm not interested in pretenders. I'm not interested in people faking it week after week. But I'm looking for a people who are going to produce fruit. Which leads to the second really amazing picture. Have you thought about this scene? I want you to put it in just kind of normal everyday thought processes just to help you see 
not only the audacity of it, but really the ridiculous nature of it. Go with us on me. An owner has some property. And the people on the property are working on it and they're supposed to be bearing fruit and giving it to the owner. When the owner sends his servants in to go receive from the harvest, those servants that the owner sent are beaten, mistreated, stoned, and killed. Would you have sent in more servants? (laughs) Does anybody go, the logical answer and solution to this problem is to send in even more than before. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to think like that's a good idea. But he does. He sends in more servants. And the same outcome happens. Beaten, mistreated, killed and stoned. Now which of you in your mind says, so now the next step clearly needs to be, let me send in my child. Oh no. <laughs> There's no chance I'm doing that. I need to get my children as far away from these wretches as possible, right? These are wicked, vile people who are killing and mistreating and stoning and beating all of my servants. What will they do to my family? It is absolutely illogical to think what I need to do is send in my children into this situation and that's going to make things better. Who would send their own son into the hand of these evil rebels? God would. We wouldn't. We look at that and say, that's illogical and nonsensical. But God would. Because the picture is the story of redemption. The father sent his prophets into Israel, calling for them to be faithful and fruitful. And the response of the people in their history was to persecute and kill the prophets of God. And amazingly, what you read is God sent more. You have a long list of them in your scriptures. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, and the list goes on. Of all the prophets that God kept sending, that they continued to not listen to, mistreat and kill. And God's response to the hundreds of years of them rejecting, killing, and mistreating his prophets was to come into the pages of the New Testament and say, I'm going to send my son. And that way, that'll show them something about who I am. This is how the Apostle Paul said this. He said, I pray that you have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. When you get that, my mind, the box. Here's here's this. I want you to comprehend length and height and depth and breadth. I want you to see this thing. I want you to understand this, comprehend it. 
And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with the fullness of God. When Paul says, I want you to understand something that cannot be understood. This parable drives at how it is so impossible to understand the depths of God's love. This is a story that no human being would follow through. It is, in fact, it was funny to read different writers who could not get their mind around. Why would this owner send in the son? That's ludicrous. And I'm reading it going, exactly. <laughs> because the whole point of the two parables is that you would see the amazing love of God. And be changed. You know what was supposed to happen. Was that when. The owner sent the son. Rather than. The executors of wrath. Because remember what they say. What should happen. Oh put those miserable wretches to death. <laughs> yeah that's what should happen. But instead he sent his son. They should have been sitting in the vineyard. Going wow after we have mistreated. And killed all the servants. That's how much he cares for us. He sent his son. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, I mean, just hold on. Here's Jesus going. So you understand what should happen. Put the miserable wretches to death out of their own mouths. But instead he sends his son. And the religious leaders hear this and go, yeah, we got to get rid of this guy. <laughs> it is unbelievable response. They are not moved to repentance. They are moved to try to arrest Jesus. And the only thing that stops them in verse 46 is says they feared the crowds. Because they understood that Jesus was at least a prophet. And the religious leaders wouldn't even grant him that. Friends, there are so many passages in the New Testament that if you have grown up in the pews, they probably become so frequently read and so frequently heard that it doesn't really sink in anymore. I mean, one of the most famous passages with good reason expresses this idea. God wanted to show how much he loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. What is he saying except that right there? I am demonstrating my love for you. I love how Paul does it. Romans chapter 5. In that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were helpless, ungodly sinners, I'm combining three descriptions in those three verses, 
helpless, ungodly sinners, Christ died. What's he saying? The same thing. Well, we're the rebels in the in the vineyard. God's sending the Son. Why? To prove his love to us. He wants you to be so shocked and so amazed by his love that you will stop saying, I will go and actually go. That you will stop saying, oh, yeah, I'll bear fruit. And actually bear fruit. That you will stop saying, I will do the will of the Father. And actually do the will of the Father. Friends, I'm asking you this morning to not reject Jesus like these leaders did. I am asking you to let God's love, his stunning, shocking, amazing love move you to live for him. I'm asking you to not let it be another Sunday where you say, I need to do the will of God and nothing changes on Monday. Don't be these people who say, I will go, but do not go. Make a plan that today you will actually do what God has called you to do. And I beg you this morning to get real with your life, to get real with the sin, and to truly not only decide, but make practical ways that you are going to change for God. Unfortunately, it is easy on Sunday to get all spiritually excited. We're going to live different lives. We're going to be different. We're going to do different. This is going to be a different week. It's a new day. It's a new week. And then we wake up on Monday morning. I know. I'm, I'm with you. I know. And it's back to what we've always done Monday through Friday. Make this week different. Because God's not looking for pretenders. But he's looking for repenters. And he's not concerned about what you've done in the past. The parable certainly reveals that. He sent his son so that you will turn and do the will of the Father. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, what vivid stories that you gave to us. To show us that you want a faithful and fruitful people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us think about our lives in a very honest way. And Lord, that you would prick our hearts this morning right now. And show us what we need to change. Prick our hearts about the sins that we are overlooking and continue to commit. Prick our hearts about the sins that we think that we are hiding from you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be real. 
be real with our faith, and be real with our weaknesses. And Lord, give us a heart today that doesn't simply say to you, we will change. But that we will actually make steps to do it. Lord, forgive us for how many times we have started towards you and then didn't do anything. Forgive us for how many times our words we said we will dedicate our lives, we will change, we will be different, we will do something, and we never did. Lord, I pray that you would hold this in our hearts this week. That when temptation arises, when Satan puts those difficulties in front of us, we will remember that this week's going to be different. And we're going to do your will. And no longer pretend. So help us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just be in awe of your love. Who would send their only son to sinful people like us? Only you would. Lord, help us to always be moved by this fact. And may your love toward us always generate a fruitfulness and a faithfulness towards you for the rest of the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. You believe he's got one more parable after that? He he loads three of them, two of them right there, calling for faithfulness and fruitfulness. But I hope you see something absolutely amazing, that God doesn't say, hey, what's the matter with you? You need to be faithful and fruitful. What he says is, do you see the love that I have for you? Who else would give themselves for you like I have? Now be faithful and fruitful. Because I've given myself to you. Do the will of the Father and come to him. It's a beautiful picture of our God. We pray that you'll respond to the invitation today. And I'm underscoring it one more time. Please don't just say it. Please don't just say today it's going to be a different day. Make real, tangible, practical changes today. And do the will of the Father. And here's the good news. We're here to help you do that. We'd love to help you in that process. Because all of us fall short of the glory of God. And we want to help you get on the right track with God to help one another toward eternity with heaven with him. Can we help you in any way? You can let us know afterward or you can come forward while we stand and while we sing.